Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The beauty of what God did with Israel, we look at it and we think uh, it was horrifying to the Canaanites. We think, oh my gosh, that's terrible. But actually, um, Clay Jones, who was a professor of mine in Biola, he says, that's because we identify with the Canaanites rather than the Israelites. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. We're here live on site at the Southern Evangelical Seminary National Apologetics Conference. It's the conference I look forward to every year. So we've set up a podcast studio here and I want to introduce you to my first guest. This is somebody that I have wanted to have on the podcast for a long time. So Kristen, thank you so much for joining me. It's Kristen Davis. So Kristen, uh, just for anyone who's unfamiliar with you, take a moment and let us know something about yourself, who you are, what kind of work you do, and why you're here to talk to me today. Yeah, so I'm kind of a jack of all trades. I am a software developer by trade. That's what pays my bills. Um, But I absolutely love Christian apologetics and more specifically biblical archaeology because that's the stuff that saved my faith. And so um, I have a bachelor's in religion from Liberty, a master's of arts in Christian apologetics from Biola, and I am in my dissertation phase at SES in their PhD program. So what's your dissertation on? um, It's on artificial intelligence and showing how that is not going to be evidence for uh, Darwinian evolution, that it actually points to the reality and the uh, underlying structures that are needed for intelligence that are really God. Wow, very cool. I look forward to that. Thanks. Well, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today is the Old Testament, because this is an area that you have, you've dived deep into this. And on this podcast, we've talked a lot about the New Testament reliability. We've talked about textual criticism, and we've talked about historical reliability. But I have not talked a whole lot about the Old Testament, and that's why I wanted to have you on for so long. But before we get into that, I wonder if you could share a bit of that story where you just mentioned that it was actually Old Testament reliability that saved your faith. What happened? Yeah, so I was raised in church and Christian school, and I don't know how this happened, but somehow I believe that evolution was true, and so that the history of the Bible really wasn't true. Um, yet I was in Christian school. And so I um, kind of struggled with my faith. And I was a Christian because it was the most exclusive. And um, so I figured I'd still be wrong. Or if I, I'd still get into heaven, no matter whether I was wrong about Christianity or not, it would have been good enough to, to make it. And so um, long story short, that has no legs under it. So I fell away. But I loved the biblical studies classes that I'd had. And so um, through some life circumstances, I ended up transferring to Liberty Um, Even though, looking back, I was probably a nominal Christian. I didn't actually really believe anymore. And I took a creation science and a biblical archaeology class. And between those two, I was like, this stuff is is true. Um, And I realized that that is where my stumbling block had been. I was like, if the very first chapter of the very first book isn't true, why should I read the rest? Like, why should I believe the parts we have to take on faith if the historical stuff isn't true as well? Um, And so that really was like a turning point for me. And I was... 
Um, I was like, why is this stuff not out there? Why is it not getting out to the church? And so that was the beginning of ministry for me was I want to get the stuff that I'm learning in school out to the church because it's just, for the most part, people don't know about it. And there's a lot of talking points, I think, on social media where you'll hear, hear people say things like, oh, the Bible's been disproven, yeah. it's not reliable. But then it seems like every time there's a new discovery, especially in archaeology, all it does is confirm or affirm something that's already in the Bible yeah. that it claims about itself. We, we've seen this happen time and time and time again. And to my knowledge, there really hasn't been a time in which they've discovered something that everybody's like, uh-oh, like yeah. that disproves what we've all thought was true. Yeah. So was there a specific find or uh, something that you just went, wow, that is the smoking gun? Or was it just more of a collective case? Yeah, I think it's a cumulative case. Um, the talk that I give on Old Testament archaeology, I actually try to go through and look at all of the big points in history, whether it be creation or the flood or um, the exodus, the conquest, and all the, you know the kings all the way through. And I show that there are is evidence at every stage throughout the Old Testament. Mm. So um, there are claims that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were actually not written until like the 800s or 500s, depending on who you talk to. And that all of that history should be thrown out because they were a prehistorical person and so they didn't write down history until 500 or 800 BC. But if you look at the details um, in those books, you can find that they correspond to archaeological data so precisely that they couldn't have been written a thousand years after when the, the texts say. So for example, like one of my favorite ones has to do with slave prices, not, um, and I know that's a controversial topic, but if you think about it in terms of there's lots of data points related to it, both in the Bible and outside of it, um, and every time the Bible talks about slave prices and you look at the ancient Near Eastern texts, it corresponds for that period of time. Yeah. And that's a thing that we can track inflation through all the way from like 20 shekels of silver and over the course of like 1500 years, it goes all the way up to 160 shekels. And every time the Bible relates a particular price at a particular point in history, it mirrors up exactly with ancient Near Eastern history. So it's one of those things that it would be like if you could try and accurately guess the price of milk a thousand years ago, you wouldn't be able to do that, especially right. without things like Google or encyclopedias or anything like that. And so it's very unlikely then that these texts were written in the time that the um, contemporary historical critical scholars think that they, or claim that they are being written. So one of the points you make is that the Old Testament is corroborated historically mm -hmm. because I think we see a lot of people coming to the Old Testament text and saying, eh, it doesn't really matter if this is real history. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe there's some stories that we can learn some good moral tales about or something like this, but you're coming along saying, no, actually the facts in the Old Testament we have archaeological evidence that corroborates some of these facts. Like, can you talk for a moment about what some of those might be? You just mentioned uh, slave prices and how, you know, I want everybody to really think about this too, because yeah. if you don't have the internet, you can't go back and look at the price of milk from a thousand years ago. You're not going to be able to guess that. If the Old Testament was written a ton, you know, ton of years later, and they're having to go back and importing all these, there's no way, there's no way they could have known. Mm. And so uh, I, I know that there's a lot of evidence around the conquest, another controversial topic, yeah. uh, but maybe share some of that, uh, that evidence that's come out. Yeah, so there's a couple different things. So one would be at the site of Jericho. That's um, one place that we like to look at a lot because there's a lot of research that's been going on for, um, I want to say almost 50 years at that particular site. But there's also been a lot of controversy. So they've also looked into it with a lot of detail. But the kinds of things that we look at are how do we, 
uh, date the age of a site and how do we date um, particular layers that correspond with biblical text. So Jericho, what happens there is that Joshua comes in, it says that they marched around the city six once a day for six days. They blew trumpets, the walls fell. They went in, they burned the city, and they took none of the grains or stores for themselves and they left everything there because Yahweh wanted uh, was removing a pagan um, culture. Not This was not about Israel's um, propping themselves up with goods. And so what we actually see at the site there is there were destructive destructions in the walls where they were able to go in. And at that particular layer where we are able to date that it would have been the same time as Joshua, so the 1400s, uh, there was a burn layer of the entire city. We see that there are grain stores in the city still um, that are were burned as a part of that. So um, they were not taken out. Um, and other cultures would have done that. When they came to conquer a people group, it was either it was for some good or some reason. Um, and so they wouldn't have left provisions in the city. Um, and then on top of that, we see um, that because the grain stores are still in there, it was a short siege. Uh, the e Egyptians, which are oftentimes thought, well, they were the ones who actually conquered. It wasn't the Israelites. But they were notorious for coming in and sieging cities and doing so right before the harvest took place. So all the grains would still have been in the field for the soldiers to get fat off of while the people starved to death in the city. Um, and they were really patient. Like we have records of them sieging cities for up to three years. Mm. Um, and so what we see here is it, it couldn't have been the Egyptians because this, and it was a short siege uh, because the food hadn't been eaten up by the people nor had it been eaten by um, the soldiers in the field. And so lots of details like that where it's, you don't get like a slam dunk. This is going to erase everybody's, um, doubts but what you see is when you look at the details and marry them up with a text they make sense they explain each other and they're uh, corroborated so how do skeptics explain all of that because it seems to me if you come across a burn layer that explains something that happened in the bible with that level of precision that would be pretty hard to come up with an alternate explanation about so so what what do they say well so there have been questions one of the ways that it's been um pushed back on is well that dating of that layer is inaccurate so the way layers are dated is based off the pottery they find in that layer and so when they do excavations at particular sites they pull up squares um, and they look at the pottery that they find in the different squares and based upon um, what kind of pottery they find, they've got catalogs and are able to then date things. So, for example, during this period of time, Mycenaean and Cypriotic imported pottery from the other side of the Mediterranean was very popular. Um, and so if they, uh, one of the arguments against this being the site of Jericho was by Kathleen Kenyon, and she said, well, we, there is none of this pottery at this site. So there couldn't have been um, a populated city when Jericho, or when Joshua came through. Um, and yet... Um, there was local pottery from the, the accurate kind for the 1400s. And on top of that, she had miscategorized some previous finds. And so when someone else came in, uh, Bryant Woods from Associates for Biblical Research, he reanalyzed both the pottery she found and previous pottery that had been found. And he said, well, this pottery she said was missing actually is in the record. Um, so that's where a lot of the controversy comes is even when they find things that parallel with biblical account, there's arguments sometimes over what the dating is for that mm. layer. Sometimes I've heard it said that the, the, the Old Testament couldn't be reliable because they couldn't even write. 
back then. Yeah. You know, they'll, they'll you'll hear people say things like, you know, they didn't have the modern equipment to be able to write something down. Yeah. And so uh, there have actually been a recent discovery, yep. and we're actually going to do a whole podcast on this with another guest, but I do want to introduce my audience to this a little yeah. bit because this is a really big find, yeah. and it's important. Can you introduce us to that one? Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited about this. Um, I pull it up because I want to make sure that I get the yeah. name of it right. It's at Mount Ebal, and Associates for Biblical Research, they have been excavating um, and a salvage dump there, um, and what they found was... The salvage dump was essentially, they had uh, a previous excavation had taken um, uh, dirt finds, like just collections of dirt that they were, because they were excavating a um, an altar. And there was uh, dirt inside of the altar because there was a double altar. There was a rectangular one with a, um, a circular one inside. And so they had taken that fill dirt and just put it in a heap because that wasn't what they were interested in focusing on. And Associates for Biblical Research, they came in and they did wet sifting of the all of the certain what they found was an iron curse tablet and so they had um, non-biblical uh, scholars who are familiar with um, like text from that area they had them scan it and look at it and translate it and as a result they found that this was a curse tablet and um, it was from Yahweh cursing other nations on, on Mount Ebal which is of course we know the cursing mountain from Deuteronomy. And so what this tells us is, and it's dated from the period of Joshua as well. So what this tells us is that there was language. There was a knowledge of Yahweh um, being uh, in a religious context and cursing other nations during the period of uh, the time of Joshua, which directly combats um, the documentary hypothesis, which it kind of says that there is not um, text or they weren't able to write during mm -hmm. this period of time. So. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. For somebody who might be unfamiliar with the documentary hypothesis, uh, what is that? And yeah. you know, how would you interact with that claim? Yeah, so the documentary hypothesis was uh, founded by Julius Wellhausen in the 1800s. And it takes on various forms. It's also called GEDP theory. Um, and basically, the underlying idea um, is that sorry it wasn't it wasn't founded by him but he kind of propagated it more um, and so basically the general idea behind it is that there were multiple source texts in the first five books of the Bible that were then woven together and edited together to be in the final context that we have and that those five books um, actually reflect a um, 500 to 800 BC view of the ancient or the ancient Israelites, and so that they are not historical, they do not predate the times of the kings and the, and the prophets, which is what they claim, um, but rather that they were written during the 500 and 800 BC in the post-exilic period by the Israelites desiring to provide a reason for why they should be allowed to take over this land. Mm. And so essentially it undermines all the historical records in the Old Testament and flips the narrative. So that the Old Testament, then the period of the kings and the prophets, where we see Israel as falling away, if you look at it through the lens of the Pentateuch, they're falling away from Yahweh. They're not following the law and God is punishes them by allowing them to go into the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles. Well, if you get rid of the Pentateuch and, say, and write that after the exile, what it actually comes to say is that they were actually uh, much more like their Canaanite counterparts in their view of religion. That mm -hmm. for them, it was naturalistic. They worshipped what was around them and that their religion kind of evolved and grew in this almost evolutionary theory of religion. Um, and so it's it's very destructive to the Christian um, understanding of the, of the Old Testament. And it also um, undermines things like uh, the fall 
and um, the law and Jesus is coming to fulfill the law. So if we if we trash the history of those, it's very destructive to the Christian faith because mm. Christianity is, um, as we understand it through Jesus, is looking at an, a fulfillment of what happened in the beginning. Like there yeah. was something beautiful and there was a falling away of that. And the rest of the story is God's redemption of that. But if you yeah. if you get rid of the first five, the history of the first five, then Christianity kind of becomes whatever you want it to be. That's very interesting <laughs> that you would say it like this because you 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 know you probably are not spending a whole lot of time reading progressive Christian books no. on the Bible, <laughs> but what you've just described is exactly how progressive Christians approach the Bible. They'll uh, I've read quotes to my audience before they they've heard all this, but you know progressive Christians will say uh, the you know what we read in the Old Testament is not necessarily God's breathed out word through prophets, but really it's it's a group of people that were living in a certain context and they were just doing their best to understand God in the times and places in which they lived. But when they describe God commanding Israel to go in and wipe out the Canaanites, God wouldn't do something like that because we've evolved, right? This whole mm-hmm. evolution of religion idea. And we know now, we, we know better. We know we have more access to knowledge about God. So we, we can look back on that. We can certainly value it. We can hold it in high regard. But ultimately what we're looking at is, is a group of people that were just communing with God in their time and place. They were doing their best to figure them out, but they were probably looking around to their pagan neighbors and, for example, seeing that, you know, if, if they want to a battle there that was that was honoring to their god to win that battle and so Israel was just doing the same kind of thing. How might you interact if somebody were to say something like that to you? Because I know yeah. the Old Testament is important to you. <laughs> yeah, so I would definitely push back on that idea because I think that um, the foundational question I would ask is, well, what do you believe about God? If God is real and personal and interactive, then I think it is almost blasphemous to his character to say that he cannot accurately represent himself to a people group. Mm-hmm. Like if we believe that we have an accurate view of him now, even through Christ, like let's just take the Old Testament out because I would imagine most of your reader or uh, viewers would acknowledge that they think um, in Christ at least we have God accurately conveying himself. Well, why can he not then do it for the, the thousands of years before that? What is so privileged at that point that God would allow himself to be inaccurately understood prior to that and only at this point mm. be accurately understood? And it also makes me wonder, like, where do you draw the line? When you start saying this part of the biblical text is true, but this part is not, how do you make that determination? How do you say that we understand Christian or God to be of this kind of character, um, but not of this kind of character? Then in more often than not, we're then reflecting what we think his character should be rather than what the text says. Mm. Um, and the interesting thing about it is if you actually go and you look at the text in its own right and you let it be what it is instead of trying to kind of push what you think it should be on it, you actually see the same God in in both covenants. Like the beauty of what God did with Israel, we look at it and we think uh, it was horrifying to the Canaanites. We think, oh my gosh, that's terrible. But actually, um, Clay Jones, who was a professor of mine in Biola, he says, that's because we identify with the Canaanites rather than the Israelites. 
And if you look at the Old Testament laws, which we, looking back, think are really archaic and cruel, if you look at them in their own context and compare them to the ancient Near East, God was actually protecting people. Mm. Like the ancient Near East, or the Israelite laws were actually kind and loving and protected all of these people groups that the ancient Near Eastern cultures around them just completely abused. So the mm. idea of an eye for an eye, which seems archaic to us, was execution for an eye that mm. then the Israelites were like, no, let's have equal punishment. That's right. For, yeah. Um, yeah. For the crime. punishment can't exceed the crime. Right. Essentially. Yeah. Right. And so I think that when you look at the Old Testament in light of its culture, and I think that's part of the problem is we're looking back on it from 21st century culture and judging it. What, but if we look at it in light of its culture, it actually shows how amazing God is, how much he loved Israel, so much so that he was saying, these, these other peoples in this area, I have given them, um, it talks about when the, with, in the Exodus, that the fullness of the Canaanite sin comes to pass. So God is even gracious with the Canaanites. He allows them an additional 400 years to get as corrupt as they want or turn to him. And at that point, he says, they're kind of, they've all sinned to this point where they need judgment. And it's going to be um, difficult and dangerous for you guys to move into this area if I leave them. And mm. so it's a it's a gracious thing on the Israelites for God to be able to move into this place um, in, a, in a militarial way. Um, but it's also, I think sometimes people push back because they are afraid that that would then mean that God today could tell us to go into a holy war. right? But I think that the pushback on that is um, they lived in a theocracy. God was their king, um, and it was set up explicitly like that coming out of Egypt. Um, but that is not the kind of government that we see post-Israel, like um, in the exiles or post the kingdoms period. So the exiles, they go off and they're under different religious um, or not different religious, sorry, different governmental rules. We see that with the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Greeks, the Romans, and then what we know of the rest of Western history. And so there's never been a government structure like there was at the period of the conquest. And I don't know that there is any reason to argue that God would ever try and do that again because he was trying to do something very specific with, with Israel during that period. Yeah. He was trying to show um, what it meant to be in, in relationship with God, how, what it meant to be holy and the distinction that we have between that, that we are not and he is. And I think he's conveyed that message, so I don't see any reason why he would expect that same kind of relationship or governmental structure to ever surface again uh, prior to whatever he decides um, he's going to do through Revelation at the end times. Yeah, that's one of the things about the Canaanite conquest when people ask me, how do you justify that or what do you think about that? Um, part of me just goes, there's, I don't really feel like I need to justify it because yeah. first of all, it's not genocide. Right. It wasn't a racially based, you know, like let's wipe out this people group just because of who they are. Yeah. It was a judgment upon their horrendous sin. And as yeah. our, our friend Clay Jones has written papers, I think the paper is called, you hate the Canaanite conquest because you don't hate sin or it's something like something that. Something like, like that, yeah. Yeah, and it's like when we really, I mean, he was talking about when he and his wife, uh, Jeannie, were reading the primary sources on the sin of the Canaanites, how it was just, it was actually really difficult to even read these mm -hmm. things because of the horrific evils that they were committing. Of course, you know, many people are familiar with the god Molech where they would sacrifice their children and uh, their, the bestiality and just the, the complete debauchery of the culture that was, I mean, if you want to put it in terms of justice and oppression, I mean, it was extremely oppressive. Mm -hmm. And so you have God going in and executing judgment. But one of the things I always 
bringing it back, and I'm, I'm glad to hear you bring it back to Revelation because, you know, we serve the same God of the Old Testament mm-hmm. is the same God of the New. I mean, Jesus, on those I am statements, he's claiming to be Yahweh of the Old Testament, yeah. and he's coming again. Yeah. And I always tell people, there's a war metaphor the second yeah. time when Jesus comes back, and you can yeah. choose. You get to be at peace with him, or you can be at war with him. Yeah. And it's going to be one or the other. And so I think the Canaanite conquest and other things like that give us that picture of the nature and character of God, that this is how he feels about sin and injustice and oppression and all of those things. Uh, But let's talk about the surrounding cultures, because one of the things you're really good at is helping people understand the Israelite culture as it compared to the other cultures of the ancient Near East. Yeah. Um, I think it's really fascinating to be able to look at the ancient Near East in general, even beyond just Israelite culture, because I think that in doing so, we end up seeing more of ourselves, um, just like Clay Jones sees with the Canaanites, I think we see a lot of ourselves in the ancient Near East in general. So, for example, um, if you look at the Greeks and the Romans, or even the Egyptians, their view of God, they literally looked at their different gods um, or the different aspects of reality and as manifestations of their gods. So they had like a sky god. And so they literally believed that the sky was a god and that the um, changes or shifts in weather patterns or, or the sky in general was result of a kind of a personality. And the same thing when it came to the oceans or the earth or fertility or any number of things. So everything in reality was an actual being with a personality. Um, so that they, they then explained reality in terms of um, reality and suffering in terms of like the whims of a person. If you think of a person who has a bad day, that might be why all of a sudden all of your crops have like died. Um, and so it was very interesting. And that seems very uh, detached from current reality. But I see the underlying worldview answers that um, so that come out of those as the same kind of answers that we have today. So if you think about uh, the two, first two worldview questions, what is the nature of ultimate reality? What is the nature of material reality? Well, they answered it and they collapsed the two into one. They said ultimate reality and God is the material reality and it's manifested in personalities. And we have something very similar that shows up in our culture today in terms of the evolutionary view as well as the um, the environment, the extreme environmentalism. In both of those, they're saying that um, material reality is ultimate reality. Either all there is is material, which is what we get for evolutionary theory, and so we've elevated that to kind of a, a deified status and that we are the highest pinnacle of it, or um, this environmentalist view where it's extreme, to the extreme sense, wherein we have to protect it at the expense of everything else. And so Christianity comes between those, authentic Christianity comes between those and says, yes, the earth is good and valuable. God created it for our good and for us to take dominion over it. So yes, in the um, environmental respect, we should take care of it, but we shouldn't make it the highest pinnacle of everything else. And the same thing with the evolutionary view. It says that diminishes what God has done in us and that diminishes the view of humanity. And so we are answering the questions in similar ways mm. to the way the ancient Near Easterns did. Do you think that influences the way the church sees the answers to those questions at all? How do you see yeah. that coming into the church even today? Yeah, I think it does because I think that when we elevate any um, any view over God in general, like any, if, 
we attempt to answer the questions in the same way that the world, uh, the ancient Near Easterns did, what it does is it ends up having implications for our view of what's gone wrong, as well as our view of salvation. So they, the ancients had a very negative view as a result of this, of what had gone wrong. If the world is just the deification of individuals, then ultimately nothing's gone wrong. This is just the way things are. There's no fall from which we must be redeemed. And we have a very similar view in the church with evolutionary theory as we as churches accept that into mm. their standard under the term theistic evolution. Um, you get the baggage that comes with it. Mm. Because if mankind is just a higher evolution of whatever, um, then mankind really is no more dignified and specially made in the image of God than anything else. And so it reduces our view of mankind and it also says, well, there's nothing actually wrong. Mm. Like this is actually the best that mankind has ever experienced because in evolution, remember, they argue that we're progressing upwards. Mm. And so this is actually the best. Nothing's gone wrong. And so then the solution to the problem is not that we need redemption from um um, are falling away from God, but rather that we need to answer the question the same way the ancients did, which is just do what you need to do to make your life the best that you want, whether it be, you know, cosmetic surgery or divorcing your spouse, or we have abortion to get rid of children that are not wanted or euthanasia to get rid of um, people with illnesses or too aged that are considered um, burdens on society. So all of these views, they're the same answers that the mm. ancients had. Um, yeah. And it's a, a minimizing of humanity as a result of a minimizing of who God is in the world. Goodness. That's some good stuff in there. <laughs> Goodness. So I'm thinking about the, you know, you have all of these surrounding cultures, very pagan. You've just described paganism, right? This is ancient paganism. This is how they approach these questions. And then along comes the Hebrew Bible. What makes the Hebrew Bible different? This, I mean, we have other law codes. There are, yeah. there are, writings we have from other ancient cultures. What makes the Hebrew Bible different than all of the other ones? Yeah, so some of the things that I have found um, is one, as we talked about with the law earlier, is that there's much more of an emphasis on, on grace, that there's a desire to have equal punishment for rewards. So there's a much more of a um, response from justice as well as Everyone was considered the same, and there was an attempt to do resets at different points in history so that no one was overly abused. Um, or, and that kind of um, thought for everyone across society rather than just the wealthy and influential is very different from what we see in the ancient Near East and other texts. Um, but I also find that there's a lot less uh, mythology encapsulated in the historical events that we see. So when you look at the, um, the accounts of creation and the accounts of floods, we see those in, those in a variety of texts outside of the Bible. And the historical details that we pull from both of our uh, accounts of those things parallel what we see in other ancient texts. So we can see the same kind of creation order. We can see the same events that took place in the flood. Um, but in, uh, wrapped around those is a significant amount of mythology. So if you look at the flood account in Genesis, it's so detailed that we are actually able to recreate the boat in Kentucky. Right. Right. Um, we know the wood, we know the dimensions, all of that kind of stuff. Yet if you look at the same story in the Babylonian account, which is called the Atrakopsis epic, which is inside the Gilgamesh epic, the account there is all about political propaganda, propping up this king called Gilgamesh. He um, has lots, he almost sounds a lot like um, Hercules. It's a, there's tons of um, stories about his, 
you know, great conquests of all sorts of different things. But in this particular one, he's heard about someone who has achieved eternal life and he wants to achieve it as well. So he goes on this adventure to find this person who's achieved eternal life and it's, his name is Atrakasis. And he tells his story of how he achieved it as a result of basically with the help of a god outsmarting the gods who flooded the world. And so because he survived the flood, he um, he, get, he gets gifted with eternal life. So he's the Noah counterpart in this text. And it has the same kind of events, but the purpose and the greater story around it is not about God conveying historical details and, and facts and information the whole point of that text is actually to prop up Gilgamesh and mm. this kind of um, interesting political agenda he has. So the Bible teaches in the book of Genesis that human beings, male and female, were made in the image and likeness of God. How unique is that among the other creation stories we learn from pagan cultures surrounding Israel? So they don't really emphasize uh, the male-female um, creation uniqueness, um, but one of the things, so for example, the creation narratives in general, when we think about those um, and compare them, there's a, a diminishing of the respect of humanity in those. So mm -hmm. in Genesis, we see both men and women are created in the image of God and in his likeness. Um, and it's kind of like out of the overflow of God that he creates us. It's not because he needs us. He just does it because he wants to. But if you look at the ancient Near Eastern texts, now they don't distinguish between gender, but they do talk about mankind being created for the service of the gods or as a happy accident. So, for example, in the Babylonian narrative, the Enuma Elish, there's two different categories of gods and the lower ones serve the upper ones and a conflict ensues and out of the body of one of the gods, the universe is created and out of the blood of another god, mankind is created to take over those chores that the lower gods don't want to do. And in a Greco-Roman uh, narrative, mankind is created um, accidentally, actually, um, for, well, not sorry, not accidentally, that was the Egyptian one, um, was created for the purpose, um, everybody has probably heard of Pandora's box. Mm -hmm. So mankind, women specifically, I guess there is a a gender difference there. Women specifically were created for the purpose of destroying mankind and causing headache, and the gods sat up there and laughed at the antics that came out of it. So it's a very different view of humanity that we're here just for the amusement and entertainment of the gods. Mm. And even in Egypt, they have a creation narrative where uh, mankind is just a happy accident. Ra, the sun god, his children disappear and he can't find them and he is distraught over it and um, in the end he ends up finding them and out of the tears that he sheds when his children return, mankind is kind of created out of that. So we're not even intentional in that view, though it's not necessarily negative. So Genesis definitely has a much higher view of humanity, um, both male and female, than any of the other ones. So as we close out here, if you could just get one message across to Christians who are watching this, um, maybe some encouragement, or what would, what would you say, just for, with all your studies and all of this work you've done, what would be the main thing you'd want them to walk away with today? I would say I would say two things. So one, the the history of the Bible is extremely important. It was a huge faith um, shaker for me, and the reason why is because there's a lot of things that we believe in the Bible that are too good to be true and that we can't verify. Mm -hmm. And so if we can't if we can verify certain things, that lends credibility to the things we can't. So one example would be with the New Testament that Jesus was raised from the dead, that that's the best explanation of the facts. Gary Habermas is very good at, at showing that, even to the point of secular you know, historians being willing to accept 
that even if they're not willing to accept Christ. So that's a, we don't believe that Jesus died on the dead or died on the cross and was raised again on faith. That's historically verifiable. But that his death counted for you and me and uh, has eternal uh, impact for us, like that's something we take on faith. And so that's a really hard thing to jump to if you're still questioning the things mm. we can verify. And so that's why historical reliability of scripture is absolutely essential. Um, and I say, would say that it's really helpful in being able to um, see who God is and see the character of God because a lot of what we see in the Old Testament is God interacting with real people in real places. Um, and we get more of that in the Old Testament than I would argue we get that in the New Testament. Um, and so we can understand, like, what does grace look like? How do, much does God love someone? If you look at David, he's the only person in all of Scripture that set, that God claims as a man after his own heart. Yet he's a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer. So what does that tell us about what God thinks about us? And so I think um, it's extremely important. And I would just encourage you that just because we haven't found evidence of something does not mean that there is an evidence out there. Um, because 90% of what existed in antiquity was destroyed. And of that 10% that survived, we've only actually uncovered and actually analyzed about 1% of it. So there's so much out there to find. There's so much sitting in storehouses that have just not even been analyzed yet. And um, so I think that the more we find, the more support for the scriptures we'll find. That's great. Where can people find you online if they want to connect with your ministry? Yeah, so if you go to doubtlessfaith.com, uh, you can connect with me there. Great. Well, I want to thank my guest, Kristen Davis, and definitely go to doubtlessfaith.com, read her blog, stay connected with all that she's got going on, and thanks so much for watching, and we'll see you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.